Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Informed Catholic Podcast. My name is Ned Jabbar, so let's open up with a prayer, please. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who by the Holy Ghost was conceived, born of the Virgin Mary, raised, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he arose again from the dead, and he ascended unto heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of the Rosary, pray for us. St. Joseph, Guardian of the Church, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So, uh, my friends, we're going to read from the um, Gospel of St. Matthew. It's chapter 14. Starting from verse 22, our Lord walks on the water. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Then he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat... By this time was many furlongs distant from land and beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Have no fear. But Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was horrified and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying, O man of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The gospel of the Lord praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, the passage here um, is very interesting. One of the most interesting things about it that the church fathers explain is that there is a lot of um, meaning here. One is the boat represents the church and the apostles in the boat obviously are representation of us and including the clergy, the leaders in the church, the pastors, the bishops. And the sea... Often in scripture, the sea represents the world, the nations. 
And the violence of the storm represents the world attacking the church, persecuting Christians, uh, constantly uh, at war with, with the church. And our Lord walking on it is showing his power and authority. Remember, in the end of Matthew's gospel, our Lord says, all authority of heaven and earth have been handed over to me. This goes back to um, Daniel's um, prophecy, vision of the, of the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who is human but with a divine nature, uh, that the one on the throne, God on the throne, hands over power and authority to the one standing before him, the Son of Man. So uh, remember uh, in, at the trial, Jesus answered when they asked him the question, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And he answered, I am. He gave the name of God. It doesn't sound the same in English, but the meaning is he is who he is. He is the, the one of eternity. And then he answered afterward, he added, he sealed it with apart from Daniel's scripture, Daniel's prophecy. And you shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven you know, with all his angels and Satan power and authority. And that, that pretty much sealed it. That pretty much put the nail, figured, uh, use, using that expression, to his death that sent him to the cross. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is that Peter asked, um, Lord, um, if it's you, Lord, if it's you, he doubted. Notice the, the question. Lord, if it is you, bid me to come to you on the water. And Peter gets out and then he begins to doubt. He starts seeing the wind. The wind is basically like the devil putting fear into him. He's attacking the Peter. He's putting doubt into Peter. He's putting fear into Peter. And then he begins to sink into the water. He begins to be swallowed up by the world, by the nations, by the, the, the different voices, the cries of the people. He lets himself be swallowed into the, uh, the, the world and all this conflict. That's pretty much what the church fathers, how they interpret it. But Christ comes and reaches out and grabs him. He grabs him and he actually cries out, Lord, save me. He cries out. He does what he's supposed to do. He cries out to the Lord to save him. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, Oh, man of little faith, why did you doubt? This scripture passage is going to have has a lot of significance to what's happening now in the church, in the leadership of the church and everything. And notice when he gets in the boat, the rest of the disciples worship him and say, you are truly the son of God. Now, of course, they say that, but then later on, of course, remember what happens. They get scared and they run off. Saying it is one thing, but believing it is it the reality that they truly believe. Well, here's an article. I'm going to read the first one from Church Miller, and then we're going to go and look into the one from the registrar. Church historian, Pope Francis is skating on thinnest ice ever. It's by Jules Gomes, church militant. 
July 24th, 2020. This article um, is actually, there was an interview here from uh, the registrar, but I'm going to read the one from Church Militant first. But first, I want to give you a little background on the man being interviewed here. His name is Carlos Erie. And he was born on uh, the 23rd of November, I believe. Um, I'm not going to pull up the Wikipedia now. Um, on 1950. And he was one of 14,000 Cuban children uh, removed by the Project Peter Pan out of um, Cuba, which was now going to fall under at the time of Fidel Castro. He's a church historian. He's a professor of early European studies. So uh, he's a devout Catholic. And because from the article, you will notice it. So let's begin the article. Rome, a distinguished church historian who fled the tyranny of Fidel Castro is warning that Pope Francis is theologically skating on the thinnest ice that anyone has, not just living, but dead or watching is, uh, you know, which, you know, whichever actually Ed Penton is the one who interviews uh, this individual in the article. It is very rare for a Pope to be accused of unorthodoxy or perhaps even heresy. Carlos Erie, professor of history and religious studies at Yale university asserts. However, things would get hairy. If a heretical Pope invokes infallibility, Erie explains in an interview with Ed Penton in National Catholic Registrar. Erie, who fled the U.S. without his parents as one of 14,000 unaccompanied Cuban children, airlifted by Operation Peter Pan, nevertheless assures Catholics that the crisis sparked by Francis is nothing compared to previous crises or previous popes. Indeed, this is child play compared to the 70 years in Avignon and when, and then all the following years of the Great Schism of 1378, where you had not two, but at one point, three rival popes. And the church survived, he says. We don't know what's going to happen, but there is a promise that the church is not going to disappear and that there, there's someone else in charge who is human and divine. The Catholic expert on Protestant Reformation declares. However, he urges Catholic, he urges that Catholics should not be complacent, because God works through people, and in the past God has always worked through us to protect His Church. I'm going to stop right here. We'll get back in a few minutes. Okay, so let's go continue the article. Faithful Catholics will always be working hard and often meeting a tremendous resistance. And individuals might never see a problem facing the church resolved in their lifetime and during their lifetime. In fact, they will have to put up with quite a bit. But eventually, and that's always a catch for us because our lifespans are short. It will work to the good. The biography of St. Teresa of Avila affirms, Erie cites the example of theologians such as St. Vincent Ferrer, who actually supported the Avignon Pope for many years, 
and then finally saw the light and changed sides. But in the meantime, he made life miserable for people who accepted the Roman Pope. But that's just the way things work out. He explains, being a heretic and not speaking ex cathedra, that is from the chair of Peter, the authority of the chair of Peter. While that's, I think, I believe that's infallibility. Yes, it is. It's a problem. It's not the worst kind of a problem. And actually, most Catholics don't know about the famous case that was invoked during the first Vatican Council, which was the case of Pope Honorius I, who, in conversation with the Patriarch of Constantinople, expressed agreement with the heretical proposition about Christ. Monotheletism, the idea that Christ had only one will, the divine will. The heresy of Pope Honorius I was brought up during the Vatican, the, the First Vatican Council, the first, as an example of popes not being fallible. But Honorius was not speaking ex cathedra. That was a private conversation. Erie clarifies. Such a heresy is very rare in church history, even though there were disagreements about the Immaculate Conception before it was pronounced a dogma, and people fell on both sides, including the popes, Erie adds, nothing, noting that Honorius, Honorius's remains were dug up and then thrown into the Tiber. That, that, that it happened. It's a crazy thing, but it happened. Okay, now, when asked if Pope Francis has embigged on, uh, on doctrine in papal documents like Omoros Laetitiae, Erie says whenever there's been any kind of doctrinal conflict or, um, I don't know this word, I'm sorry, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to avoid it because I don't know how to pronounce it. It has come and has gone. Sometimes there is a fallout, but it's resolved and the church has survived the crisis. In his course on the Catholic intellectual tradition, the professor gets students to realize that crisis is, is constant, even though the details of the crisis might be different and the intensity of the crisis might vary. As a believer and historian, Erie says his students are wide-eyed when he tells them that the Catholic Church is the longest-lasting continuous institution in human history. And not even the pharaohs had this kind of institutional continuity. In his Opus Magnum, Reformations, the Early Modern World, 1450 to 1650, Eerie resoundingly champions the thesis that the Reformation can only take place within the Catholic Church. Even though Protestants, he writes, were not always of one mind, and actually created numbers of distant competing reformations and churches, each of which claimed to be the genuine article. They nonetheless took to speaking of the reformation in the singular rather than plural and assigning its capital letters. But for Catholics, genuine reform means not only one thing, improving the Catholic Church while remaining a faithful to it. As Catholics saw it, Protestants were not reformers with a capital R, but rebels, and their so-called reform reformation, uh, nothing more than misguided revolts. 
All right, that ends it here. So um, I like the fact that he um, he tells Catholics not to remain complacent, and also that uh, crises are constant. He's actually quite right. A crisis is always constant in the church. There's always constant battles, and um, we're going to go into. I want to go into the other article. Uh, what he says here in the um, interview, which is in. Um, the registrar. Uh, there's some interesting parts here when he talks about the Avignon, uh, uh, what do you call it, um, crisis, the the problem, what happened when a pope was kept a prisoner. So I'm going to uh, continue here a little bit. Church historian discusses papacy, past and present. This is from National Catholic Registrar. We don't know what's going to happen, says historian Carlos Erie, but there's a promise that the church is not going to disappear and that there's someone else in charge who is human and divine. I actually really like what he says there, and it's really encouraging that you have a professor. He's not a, he's not a, 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 a what do you call it, a, a, a bishop. He's not a, a cardinal. He's not a priest. He's a layperson, a layman. And it's comforting to hear someone like him. Now, this article in Catholic Register is by Edward Penton. As a Catholic expert on the Protestant Reformation, Professor Carlos Erie is well acquainted with the crisis the Catholic Church has periodically faced throughout her history. Okay, and he goes into his background a little bit from uh, what happened uh in his life, uh, Cuba. So we won't go into that, but he's been from, um, you know, he's been in, involved in Yale and he did write an, a biography of St. Teresa of Villa and, and he's an award memoir of experiences in Cuba. He wrote about his life there. So he gave an interview with, uh, the registrar. So let's continue. Pope Francis is much less guarded or careful than Pope's not just in recent history, but in the previous 19th and 18th and 17th century, all of whom were very careful. He's constantly surprising me as he surprises everyone else. But what I find very odd about him is that he's a Jesuit, and yet the Jesuit tradition has for so long emphasized being careful. So he just blurts things out. That is very true. I had a discussion with a friend about this, and he agreed with this. Uh, having studied history of popes, do you think that the grace of the office will overcome any challenges and controversies? Oh, definitely. This is nothing compared to previous crises or previous popes. This is child's play. I love that. I really do. I think this is better than the Church Militant article. But critics say Pope Francis has impinged on doctrines such as Amoris Laetitiae. Forgive me if I pronounce it wrong. My Latin is not great. Yes, but whenever there's been an, any kind of doctrinal conflict, there has been, and there has been any kind of, uh, again, that word come up, logogym. It has come, it has gone. Sometimes there is a fallout, but it's resolved as with the old Catholic Church, often Vatican I. There's always some fallout. But the church has survived the crisis. In my Catholic intellectual tradition course, which uh, I teach with two colleagues, 
we've tried to get the students to realize that crisis is constant. The details of the crisis might be different and the intensity of the crisis might be very, but for heaven's sake, seven years of Avignon and then all the, uh, the following years of the great schism of 1378, where you had not two, but at one point, three rival popes and the church survived Okay, uh, it deposed two popes and elected a new pope, but they only resulted in three popes. If you were to cross the English Channel during that schism, if you crossed from England to France, you would immediately be excommunicated. If you cross from France to England, it would be get the it would be the other way around, because England recognized the pope in Rome. And France, of course, recognized the Pope in Avignon, France. And so there was a mutual excommunication. It would be even more shocking because there, at least you have to get into, the sh into a ship and cross the water. But on the continent, you just go a few kilometers this way and there was another Pope being recognized and vice versa. So we shouldn't really get too concerned because it, was, it, will, it will resolve itself as it always has. Does, the, does this affect your faith? This is where the historian and the believer can take two very different approaches. I am both. So historian on this side of my brain says, this looks problematic, like watching two vehicles or two trains about to crash, and you don't know exactly what's going to happen. But the believer on this side of my head says, it may take a while for the dust to settle. We don't know what's going to happen, but there is a promise that the church is not, is not going to disappear and that there's someone else in charge who is human and divine. He's speaking about our, our Lord. So there's protection, but that doesn't pre preclude human action, does it? This is a question I'm going to give the, he's going to give the answer. Oh no, God has worked through us to protect many of those uh, problems during the schism. We're trying to resolve the multi-pope situation back then. That meant, well, and actually many of them, without their work, the problem would not have been resolved. It's not like Jesus appeared magically at one point and said, okay, this is the, this is the pope. People will always be working hard and often, meaning a tremendous resistance. This, to me, as a historian and a believer, is always constant reminder that whatever happens on earth. Human beings are making decisions, making choices, sometimes very difficult choices, and God works through people. Let me stop right here for a minute. So uh, it says question here and, and works to the good of eventually. Eventually, and that's always the catch for us because our, our lifespans are short it's quite possible that when things go wrong, an individual might never see it resolved in their lifespan. And during their lifetime, they will have to put up with quite a bit. The theologian, St. Vincent Ferrer, actually supported the Avignon Pope for a number of years and then finally saw the light and had to back away. But in the meantime, he made life miserable for people who accepted the Roman Pope up until the point where he changed sides. But that's just the way things worked out. That's very interesting because I had a discussion with a friend about that, you know, about John Paul, uh, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, where some of the choices he made 
And the fact that he pointed out here that even someone like St. Vincent Ferrer, who was actually a Canaanite saint, made mistakes. And that's the whole point of being a saint, is that you were once a sinner who overcome your sinful uh, you know, behavior, your sinful mistakes, your very you know, human mistakes. And he had to make the difficult decision. I don't know how it was for St. Vincent Ferrer when he supported one pope, then realized that he made a mistake and that he had to change sides. I mean, imagine what people might have said to him, calling him a turncoat. You know, that's very interesting. Um, what is your opinion on cases where a pope has been accused of orthodoxy or perhaps even heresy? The answer, it's very rare. But again, there is no real big uh, trouble unless Vatican I is invoked unless infallibility is invoked. That's where things would get hairy. Being a heretic and not speaking ex cathedra, while it's a problem, it's not the worst kind of problem. And actually, most Catholics don't know about the famous case that was invoked during the First Vatican Council, which was the case of Pope Honorius I. We, we already went through that in the uh, Church Militant article, who, in conversation with the Patriarch of Constantinople, expressed agreement with the heretical proposition about Christ's monothelitism, the idea that the Christ had only one will, the divine will. Pope Honorius said, sounds right to me. So during Vatican I, this was brought up as an example of popes not being infallible. But this is where the ex cathedra cloud came in. Honorius was not speaking ex cathedra. That's was this was a private conversation and a private matter, a private choice. That was very rare. This uh, this was a question. It answer. It's very rare. But they did not. But they did dig up his remains and threw them in the Tiber. So it's 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 that rare. Well, it doesn't happen to every pope. Let's thank God. My goodness, imagine digging up. That's very gruesome. It's been that rare, but for heaven's sake, all the disagreements about the Immaculate Conception before it was pronounced dogma. People fell on both sides, including the popes. But this pope is probably skating on thinnest ice than anyone, not just living, but dead or watching. And they probably are watching. That means, obviously, television, internet, everything. It must be that surprising. Now, next question. Do you think with hindsight of history, looking back, maybe in 30 years, we'll look back and see why this happened and that it was perhaps actually necessary? Answer. There's always a degree of good that comes out of any crisis. And whether it's intentional on the part of the person responsible for the crisis or not in, 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 in immaterial in that long run, Question, when it has to do with the popes and the church, then usually things work out. Usually they do. One would have to say, given the fact that this is 2019, not usually, but always, I tell my class, and then there are eyes upon really open, really wide. If you know the Catholic Church is the longest lasting, continuous institution in human history, not even the pharaohs had this kind of institution. Continuity which was what it, what it is, what I've always found remarkable. And it is not just an institution. It's an absolute monarchy. Granted, the monarchy is elected, but the monarchy is absolute. It's, it, it has absolute power. 
Question, could one argue that even if a pope changed the whole essence of the papacy because the office is steered by Christ and the Holy Spirit, that in the long run, it really would matter. The pope could change could change it radically, and it would still survive. Answer, oh yes, definitely. We have many examples, not just the popes, but councils that voted the wrong way. And it took some years, but things were corrected. It happens, but what's always surprised me, both as a historian and a believer, it's sort of the, let's call it the bounce back principle an effect which you don't normally see with human institutions. And that's what I think is one of the more remarkable faces of the history of the Catholic Church. Question. Despite the best efforts of some members to undermine her, she keeps going. Answer. Yes, she keeps going. And sometimes there is so much nastiness, so much suffering involved in these critical moments, in these crises. It's almost like, I guess, an apt comparison might be in an illness from which one is eventually healed. It's, it never, it's never pleasant to go through, but the healing is always wonderful. Stretch of time, because the healing, even if it's slow, it's always welcome. So it ends right there. This is a very remarkable, um, I think a very helpful one. We don't know. This is the longest church, uh, institution in history. Remember in the last episode I said, of all things, looking at the way the church started, looking at the men that Christ picked, looking at the way our Lord died on the cross, looking at Peter and Paul, their execution, their death, seeing the fact that all the apostles died and seeing the persecution, seeing the corruption in the church, which he mentions here. The church shouldn't have survived, but it did. It survived because it was established by the Son of God. Michael Voris says it in his program over and over again. The church survived. You look at the Protestant churches, do you honestly think, looking at them, that they could have actually put together the scripture, the canon of scripture? Do you? We don't see that. They don't do that. They don't even agree on interpretation. They don't even agree on translation. But the most remarkable thing about it is that the Catholic Church has survived. It has survived a lot of popes. It has survived popes with mistresses. It has survived popes who got murdered. It has survived scandal. It has survived corruption of money. And yet it does bounce back into place. The church always looks bad. And it always bounces back in place. That's why I, I love that part in Dr. Taylor Marshall's book, Infiltration, where you have Napoleon saying, I have the power to destroy your church, he says to a cardinal. And the cardinal, in a very smirky way, said, really, you know, we clerics have been trying to destroy the church for 17, 1,800 years, and we failed. If you think you can do it, you're going to fail too. It's remarkable because it has it has the Holy Spirit and it has the Son of God. It has God himself as her protector. And you got to look at it. Look at Judas. Judas is an example of every corrupt cleric in the church. We don't know what he did with the money. He was the one in charge of the money. 
And it's ironic, these men who are sinful men always need money because money allows them to play and to dive into their sins, indulge into their sins. It survived. And the church will survive. And I think we're living in a very interesting time. We never lived, we never experienced a, a pope that stepped down and was given the title Emeritus, Pope Benedict. And we have to see what's going to happen, what's going to happen eventually. Francis is just one of many players on the stage of church history. And we are also players. We're the star of our own story and we're also co-actors and co-players in this drama of uh, salvation history. So we're going to end it here. And um, I want to thank you guys. Uh, now my podcast can be heard in um, Portugal. Uh, I can be heard in, um, in Cambodia. I can be heard in South Korea, Brazil, Australia, Great Britain, the United States, so uh, I'm going to aim that next time in a couple of weeks, I'll probably see um, New Zealand on there. Okay, so uh, God bless. And so we'll uh, end this with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. God bless.